Cool. And we're back. Welcome, everybody, to the New Seed Podcast. We're here with the author of The New Employee Contract, the CPO of Suzy, Burn the Box host, and I'm a, which I'm a proud subscriber of, Starp Advisor, and most importantly, a New Jersey native, as like myself, Anthony Ernesto. Anthony, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Peacemaker. How are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's get right into it. You're, you have the cachet. You've you, you proved longevity through the dot com uh, the dot com era AI revolution where we stand now. Yeah. Really walk us through your background. You know, give us a little pitch of yourself, the things you've been through, and uh, we'll take it from there. Sounds good. Yeah, definitely longevity. Uh, I think the gray hair uh, kind of <laughs> shows that. I, I I always start these things. That, so I was an accountant by study. I went to college for accounting. And in the first year I was doing accounting work and I absolutely hated it. My, it was mind-numbingly boring. And I was also really bad at it. So the first job I had as an accountant, I was a junior accountant, they fired me and and it was okay. Like I wasn't upset. I was like, it was a good forcing function. I didn't really love it. And uh, and so it really changed my trajectory of my career. I, I started looking at what else can I do? And I started working for Robert Half as a recruiter doing accounting recruiting. And then eventually the dot-com boom started and went and did recruiting for all these technology companies. Then they started asking me like, hey, uh, you're doing all this recruiting. Can you help us build employee manuals? And and I'm a yes and person. I'm like, yeah, yes. And what else can I help you with? So, and then it started getting into what <clears throat> I think now is called a fractional CPO or fractional type of role. But I was acting as head of HR for a lot of these dot coms that were just building and and becoming present. Until one of them, actually, a couple of founders uh, that that found a company called Rare Media years ago started a, a company doing audio and they said, Hey, come on in and, and join us. You know, we'll give you founder options. You'll help us build a company. And I was like, all right, I'm in. And I got bit by the startup bug at that point. So I, I like to say I got my PhD in startup. I've been doing startups for my entire career in New York, where you would typically go finance. Everyone was like, why aren't you working for Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or Bear Stearns at the time? I was like, no, I'm going to go work for this, you know, startup. And they're like, what? What's a startup? What? Is... So it was, it was really, and just seeing sort of the big surge of the dot com boom, and then the bust, and and then mobile at one point. So I was with a mobile company doing video. I know it seems uh, pretty standard these days, but you couldn't stream video on a mobile phone years ago. And we were actually as part of the company that did the first streaming on a on an actual phone on a flip phone. So really excited. Always want to be part of that cutting edge and been doing that for 20 years. I jumped out for a little while, for a couple of years out of the HR role into a commercial role within a startup. So I, I always felt like I wanted to be on the business side, although arguably I would say HR is on the business side too, but on the commercial side of a, of a business out, out of HR. And I was doing that and that was freaking hard, man, like doing sales and product and Oof, it was really the most difficult period of my career. And then I got a call uh, from, a, from a former colleague and introduced me to Matt Britton, who I knew, who's the CEO and founder of Suzy. And he said, hey, we're pivoting. We really need. And, and I say this to Matt all the time. He hired me very early, like looking at someone with my experience because he knew, hey, this thing is going to be really, really huge. And, and so we need somebody to kind of help guide who has built companies and scaled companies pretty, pretty significantly. So that's my career. And then I do a bunch of side stuff as we'll probably get into here. And I'm at Suzy as the chief people officer right now. If you could introduce us to what exactly Suzy does. Yeah, I appreciate that. So we are a market research platform. So what we do is we give companies and, and we work with a lot of enterprise customers that you'll know, you know, billion plus in revenue and connecting them to the consumers in almost real time where we're typically market research has uh, a lag in it. Traditional market research takes a very, very long time, you know, months uh, to get research and insights back. And if you can imagine how the world change almost is, the change in the world almost happens in real time these days or in weeks or months where it used to change in years and decades. Now you need a solution that gets you really quick insights. And that's what Susie does. Well, with that being said, uh, Anthony, again, incredible background. Susie, very cool what you have going on. But there's so many topics we want to dive deep on with you right now. The people who know you, 
You have a large LinkedIn following. You have some interesting takes, obviously an author, your own podcast, Burn the Box, which we love. So we want to dive in right right away. So something that we talked about about a month ago Ed, that you mentioned to me is the lack of HR and people ops people on the boards of companies. And I thought that was really, really interesting. So break that down. Why is there a lack of HR people on boards? And why do you think there needs to be more of a presence? Yeah, I appreciate that. It's it's actually it's uh it's like the effort of of putting women into STEM that I started a bunch of years ago. It's sort of I latch on something and I just can't not pursue it and I see a gap. So, you know, the most fascinating thing here is if you and I forget who put out the survey, but it's like Mercer or IBM or one of those or McKinsey put out a study and they, what they did is they went out to boards and said, "What are you most worried about?" So, boards of directors of both public and private companies and the number one thing by far more than anything else was talent, right? So I saw that and I said, you know what, let me start doing some research here in terms of talent, like how many boards have HR people on them? And it is small, if not non-existent, there are zero. So these two things don't, you know, like they don't match up to me. And I was like, what the heck is going on here? Why aren't there more? Because I also feel like if there were more HR folks on boards, I think folks like in my position would have, and I do with Matt Britton. So the seat at the table was there from the very beginning, but I think more people in in the HR world would have the seat at the table, have increased influence uh, on the business where a lot of them are, are frustrated and, and burnt out. That's another thing happening, happening in HR. And so I started exploring, I started asking folks that are on boards, like why aren't, you know, people that that know the structure of boards and how they exist. So I, I like I dive deep into these things. What are the structures in the past? And what they told me basically is that the current frameworks and boards just don't need an HR person. So even though talent is the most important thing that these boards are considering, the actual structure of the board, you need your CFO, you need your legal, but HR, there's really no need of it. And then what I found out tangentially was that the reporting requirements for public companies around human capital metrics is, is one. There's one required metric. So all companies have to report headcount. That's and it's I and I, I believe it's a requirement, but nothing else in terms of human capital. So the other path that's kind of close in cross sections here is that there's really no human capital metric required reporting for public companies and, and especially private companies. And so that's another thing, like what is happening in this space? So really trying to dive in. Now, there are some folks that are HR, former HR folks that are part of boards. And so asking them sort of how they got onto there. But I think it really needs to be a big push for us, especially if you're thinking about talent being the, the number one uh, most important topic for boards. So it's a big gap here. And I'm still going through this exploration now. And I, and I look forward to to changing kind of mindsets here as we move forward. That's an interesting take because a lot of startups that we look into, I'm sure that you've been around, sometimes they what they consider board members around the series A, series B level, right? And they're just thinking through the investor lens. As you mentioned earlier, a lot of HR functions are frustrated, burnt out, which we'll get into earlier. Could be due to lack of resources, support, let alone getting them a true board uh, role, right? Within a company, a decision maker, really giving valuable input. What have you seen from the individuals you've spoken with that do take a board seat? How have they gotten into that position? And what are certain things that they see that's frustrating on their end when navigating, you know, companies that actually have them through as a leader, essentially? Yeah, I think the 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 common strings that I've seen, one is a progressive board or a C or a chairperson or a CEO that says, you know what, this is a big challenge for us. Let's identify someone with that kind of background to help us, right? So I think that and and I've always seen that. Yeah, more progressive folks like like a Matt Brayton who sit on boards and are the chairperson of boards see these opportunities to bring diversity into boards and and think progressively around these things. So I would say that is a is a key factor, right? A key decision maker seeing that. I think the other thing is a lot of these HR folks that are on these boards talk business. And it's it's actually a blog post that I put out, I believe, a month or two ago about how HR needs to really start talking business language, not HR language. And I think a lot of these folks, you look at the GM, uh, the uh, the CEO of, of GM, who sits on boards, right? Former HR person who's now sitting in that that the highest commercial seat, the highest seat in, in that organization. 
So I think it's it's two of those things. One is I think you have a progressive CEO that looks to have these additional board members that 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 aren't sort of traditional in the sense or or covering different aspects of it. Because you always have your you know your finance, your legal. Those things are kind of standard. Like it's like you can't have a board without. Any, and then of course the investors in some cases sit on the boards too, but you also identify like who can help us from a business perspective. So solving some of those challenges. And then the third thing, you know, what I've seen are investors that are really looking at the human capital impact for their organization. Investors that truly believe that, hey, you know, HR or human capital, not HR specifically, but human capital has a direct impact on our business because we're no longer manufacturing widgets, right? We're in in the 70s when all these things were kind of put together and frameworks put in place around the organization of businesses. It was, you had a manufacturing facility and you were manufacturing widgets, widgets and most of your company value was derived from assets. Well, now it's complete opposite. Most of your company value so 90 plus percent, I would argue it's almost 100% because a lot of people are like, oh yeah, it's people, but it's also software. Well, until AI starts creating software, that software is created by people and your brand is IP, but that's created by people. But I'm not going to argue with them. I'll take 90%. 90% of your company value is, is people, right? So I think it's a fundamental shift. And so those investors that are like, hey, we have to put human capital at the center of our investment strategy, thus oh, actually, we should probably have an HR person or an experienced person that focuses on human capital on our board. At what stage do you foresee HR professionals chiming in at a leadership level in regards to being a board member? Early on? I think it's it's early. Yeah, if you think about like, listen, I think years ago, the, the folks that brought me into their company very early on were very progressive, right? So having an HR person super early on is not commonplace, right? You think of, okay, I'm a founder. If it's tech, I need a CTO. If I'm not the CTO or the product person, sometimes I am. I need somebody then on the commercial side. So you always think sales and finance. Those are your two key hires at the very beginning. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a CFO. But if you think about it, sales is about you need revenue. There's no question you need revenue. So you need a salesperson. And the finance person is to make sure you're reporting all this stuff. So when you're trying to raise money, that you have all your your ducks in a row, right? So those are two two key hires. And I've always seen them very uh, very early on in, in companies. The next thing is talent, right? Like you have to now, if you're going to market, you need more salespeople, you need more marketing people, you need more product people. Again, this is all before AI can do some of this automation, but you're still going to need the human element in a lot of these things. So your HR person, and and oftentimes what I've seen historically with companies, and, and I mean this with love, but a lot of companies will look to their office manager as their HR person. Like, oh, you're the office manager. You now do all the HR stuff. I'm talking about strategic HR, someone that says, okay, in this stage of your organization, these are the key hires. This is how you organize all these sort of stuff, making sure that you have the right fundamental human capital in place so you can be successful. So seed is probably early, very early. A, maybe like towards the end of A into a B round, depending on how big your A round is. So it all depends. I hate that answer, but it does depend. But I would say that you need to go definitely post seed. I would even argue at the seed level, having some sort of fractional person to help you out. But I think it's around that point. That's where you need your HR person. And I think that's also where it could be helpful to start thinking about HR at the board level. So you kept mentioning how people literally are the asset. We They keep the shit moving, whether it's branding as walking billboards, whether it's you know putting the code together, right? Shipping product. Why do you think that individuals, team members, people are the ones that are actually doing the work? They don't get the credit in terms of taking that leadership position. Why do you professionals, leaders, executives see people as almost a liability opposed to the assets that they clearly are. Yeah, because they're not assets. Technically, on the balance sheet, people, your your cost of people are an expense. They're not an asset. So fundamentally, and this is another driver. So in addition to, I want to get more HR people on boards, I want more better SEC required human capital reporting the other thing, and there's a whole effort that's happening around this, is really thinking of the people within your financial statements going from an expense to an asset. So 
give you a perfect example. And there was a great book. Laura Queen wrote a book called People Economics. So a big fan of Laura's. And her, she talks in there uh, and she goes super specific. She's former CPA turned HR person. And so, you know, you can consider that a move from the dark side to the light side as a Star Wars reference, or depending on your perspective, maybe it's light side to the dark side, whatever. But but she joined the HR ranks coming from an uh, accounting background. Sounds very familiar, although she was successful being an accountant. I was not. But the idea was, it is that if you buy a P, you know, if you want to, you have an office space and you want to rebuild your bathrooms, that's counted as an asset. That that could be actually expense and amortized. Whereas if you hire somebody, that's all that's an expense, right? That is you can't amortize that. They're not an asset. People, and it's actually the irony here is in most cases, if you have a good performance system, these assets rise, right? Their value rises over time. Where are, you know, if you buy an office space, it immediately depreciates and you can start depreciating. So fundamentally, and I'm not going to get into gap accounting here because again, failed accountant. So don't want to do that, but it's really the, that function that it's, it seems so it's huge, but it's so small an issue that if we, if, if we can start looking at people and then the training of people, even I, I would even take it at the, at the, at the most conservative level, let's keep people as expenses. The training we provide to people is an asset, right? That should be, we're investing in people to ex- accelerate their value in our company and increase their value. And yet again, that's an expense. And so it doesn't get the same treatment as a building or a property or some sort of asset, a piece of machinery, like a piece of machinery and a human treated very differently. In fact, the piece of machinery is more valued on a financial statement than that human. So again, all of this built when Every 90% of the, the company value were assets, were the piece of machineries, or were no longer there. And so there's a big push with Congress to really rethink this entire thing. And it's a big effort. You know, you're changing gap rules, which is like, you know, very, very difficult. But that's fundamentally the challenge that I'm seeing uh, from a from a framework perspective. I mean, this perspective is of course, spoken within the time frame we're in now with the AI revolution and things like that. Was this topic even brought to light, let's say 10, 15 years ago, as you were stepping into the space? Not, I mean, there, I, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think it probably was, I'm sure there were folks, there's a bunch of professors right now out of University of Michigan, uh, UPenn, a, a bunch of different folks, uh, this company called Just Capital, which looks at human capital metrics. There's a lot of folks kind of, and, and in fact, the, the managing director of Just Capital presented to Congress about this. So this was very recently. But I think, yeah, I think there has been definitely a movement. David Ulrich is uh, is kind of an OG of the HR metric space. Was is a professor at, at Rutgers, has been talking about this probably for decades now. And so, yeah, I think there's movement. I think what has happened is because that company value now is all people, ninety percent of it. I think the argument becomes a lot clearer and a lot better. Interesting. So, as I mentioned earlier, through through your intro, you've you've been and you currently are an advisor to a multitude of startups. When do you typically, you know, come in through an advisory role and what do you consistently provide these startups in terms of your perspective, your guidance, strategy, as you mentioned, you know, sometimes people can come in as a fractional chief people's officer to almost guide them through whatever industry or sure. place they're in and their company time frame. Speak a little bit about that, uh, being a startup advisor. I'm happy to. I, I love this. I, I absolutely love doing this work. It charges me up. And I'll tell you why, because I provide zero HR advising, zero. For all of these startups, they never say, hey, help us with our recruiting or it's zero. And what you'll find is most of them, if not all, are HR and recruiting technology companies. And what I'm doing is I'm helping them fill the gap. So one of the things, and I come in early on a lot of times, and and the, the irony is, you know, years ago, my first one of these is with a company called Namely, started by Matt Straz. Matt came to me and said, hey, I have an idea for an HR platform. Can you take a look at it? I looked at it and, you know, like typical New Yorker, I'm like, this is this is garbage. You have to change this and do this. This is not how you I would do it or whatever. And he looked at me, he goes, you should be an advisor. I'm like, all right, sure. And and kind of that 
that point triggered a lot of interest and 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 capabilities here. But it's really it's it's a couple of different things. One, in in a lot of these HR tech companies, it's former folks like yourself, maybe you know, not HR folks looking to start something, right? They see a gap in their own management, their own leadership. It could be like, oh, I was recruiting and that system really was terrible and I couldn't figure out anything. Or like, hey, I was trying to train my people and I couldn't do that at scale or whatever. You saw a gap and you start a company, there's, so you have sort of your own domain expertise. Let's say you're a SaaS person, you know SaaS, or you're a technology person, you know technology, but you don't know the HR and recruiting space. You've never experienced it. I have 20 years of buying every single recruiting HR platform. So what I do is I fill that gap for you. And it's a go-to-market gap for a lot of these companies where I'm like, let me look at your website. Let me look at your go-to-market. Let me look at your SDR, your sales development representative emails and how they're positioning because HR folks get 100 emails a day. And I'm telling you, 99 of them are being deleted, right? So you're not your message is not getting through in a very, very competitive market. So it's go-to-market, filling in that HR gap. How to, how to name something? How do you name something so HR people can see immediately what value you bring? How do you talk business on your website? If you look at a lot of HR technology companies, they're like, yeah, we, we're the platform for culture. Like, no one will buy that. Like, what does that mean? Like, you, you're a platform for culture? Like, no, like, how are you helping me increase sales? Or how, you, how are you helping me increase productivity? Like, measure it. So I provide that those services and product too. Like I will work with a lot of the advisory services that I do. I'll look at product like Figma frames and give feedback. Like, hey, is this the workflow? Is this how we're doing? And I love it. It's so much fun to me. And I jumped out and I did this for a company called SmartUp as their president of US operations. I didn't love the sales piece. Uh, it wasn't, you know, not my style, but I love the sort of go to market, the product development, the product marketing stuff. And, and so it really like, and I do that for a bunch of different HR tech companies and continuing to be a, an advisor to a whole bunch more. So you spoke briefly. I mean, you touched upon too many good things. Well, just to pinpoint something I thought was interesting, relevant to myself and Chris, you said a, a lot of HR tech companies that you deal with are individuals, professionals that are like, hey, I'm I'm an executive. I've been in HR leadership. I see a gap. I'm going to build a product. Chris and I, we are not HR executives, right? We are not HR leaders and don't have that past to be transparent. And the reason we started this podcast is not to get to that position necessarily, but as, we, as candidates, we take the candidate perspective. The only true engagement a lot of candidates have with HR professionals like yourself is, hey, I'm looking for a job, right? So stepping out of college, Chris and I, we started to identify, you know, weird trends, weird relationships, weird communication and language processes that people were, were shooting at us as candidates. A lot of it's copy and paste. It was repetitive. It was almost like everyone had the same job posting or job description and values and culture, which was a little weird. So that's essentially how me and Chris got involved into our podcast and what, we, what we're building. What do you see on the other side of the table, opposed to dealing with people that are in the HR space that have been uh, working with people ops and operations and startups and executives, what do you see from the candidate side of the table? What are certain things that candidates are desiring? I know you talked a lot about it in your book, which we'll get into in particular with Gen Z millennials, but just wholesomely, could you break down a couple of topics, trends, desires, questions even that people on the other side of the table want to know about individuals like yourself? And companies that are looking higher? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And I love that you're both identifying in a gap and an opportunity here. I know a great advisor if you need one. No. Um, so where uh so to answer your question, I think it's a couple of different things and it depends, right? So I think we're kind of I'm I'm trying to not generationalize this because I did write the book about Gen Z. So I'll try to pick a couple of things that I think most uh people want across generations. One is they want transparency. And, and what I mean by that is, so there, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you two stories. One is I'm on an app. I order something. I know exactly where that order is until it gets to my front door. And I know, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's Domino's pizza. I, I know, 
I order, if you've ever ordered in Domino's pizza, it has a tracker. And by the way, and I say, I've been saying this in a lot of podcasts, someone really killed the dream for me because I really thought it was tracking the pizza, uh, but it's more, uh, it's time-based. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it was I know, a dream it's crusher. devastating when you find that out. It's absolutely devastating. Yeah. Yeah. It's devastating. But because I really like, and someone's like, what do you think? There was a barcode on the pizza. I'm like, I don't know. I just thought it was really, but any case that, to order the pizza and then to track the pizza, it's super easy, right? So this is a pizza. Like, I, do I really need to know that my pizza's in the oven? And my, but it's made available. I go to a recruiting solution and I put in my resume. It goes into some sort of black box and I don't hear anything. And the next thing you know, I get an email saying, you're declined. I'm like, what? what? Like, what world is that okay? You know, except for, by the way, if this happens in the and I just had uh, a daughter and I have a son applying for college, this is a this is college applications. Like, hey, thanks for applying, but you're not in. And it's like, well, why? Like, why aren't I? Like, you give me a, a reason. So it's the same kind of thing, right? It's like there's no transparency. So I think having a level of transparency to go, okay, where is this? And everyone in recruiting knows there's a process on the back end, right? Recruiter screens it. Recruiter sends it to hiring manager. Hiring manager screens it. Hiring manager says yes. Recruiter then, then you know something's happening because then you're reached out and said, hey, we'd love to meet with you, right? But before then, no idea where that pizza is or your resume is, right? That's one thing. Second thing is they really want to, and this is not so much of, of a want, but a lot of folks now have unlimited resources to resource your to research your company. And I will say Gen Z does this really, really well because they're born with the iPhone, right? They're born having access to unlimited global information on their mobile phones. So they do this really, really well where former generations do, but we never, I didn't have a LinkedIn. When I, years ago, there was no such thing as LinkedIn. We would actually call companies and like get a receptionist and say, hey, who's who's your controller? I have to reach out. I have a, I have a bill to pay. They'd give me the name and you'd build a tree of the company, like an org tree, if you were recruiting and there was no LinkedIn. So, you know, this is my version of, I used to have to walk up hill both ways to school in the snow, you know, when it was torrentially downpouring kind of story, right? Like no LinkedIn, poor you. But there wasn't, right? So the research having available, you know, information on your company readily available for these folks. So super, super important. And they want to know about your culture. They want to know about your company. What are the values that you have as an organization? How are you thinking about racial inequity? How are you thinking about climate change? How are you like, and by the way, it's not only what you think, but what you represent. So one of the things that's really interesting that I see Gen Z doing a lot is you're perpetuating as an organization, you're diverse. Well, they're going to go to LinkedIn and look at who's your board. What's your board look like? Oh, wow. They're all white males. Okay. Let me look at your C-level executives. Wow. It seems really the same thing. You're not really diverse. You're, you're higher ups in your organization. There's no diversity there. Why am I going to, even, I, I'm not even applying to your company. Like you won't even hear from them. So I think it's also that, that ability. And it depends, again, generationally, some of these things are more important. I would say they were, they're important to all generations. But, you know, as an Xer, I never had access to the information. So I probably worked for companies that weren't diverse. So it's all about custom norms. So th there's a whole bunch of, we can unpack this for a whole podcast, but there's a whole bunch of things that people are are definitely looking for these days. But I would say transparency, a big one. So quickly have to chime back into pizza delivery <laughs> quick. I think that's a really good example because I mean, literally in any kind of delivery type of service, I just ordered something from Amazon, every step of the way, you know, who picked it up, who dropped it off, what time, and it seems as if it's just, I guess, the application process when looking to get a job where you just send Monday, month later, sorry, maybe, maybe next time or whatever the case may be. And then, and then the adjective, where is you know, that acceptable? Like where in the world would we accept that anywhere? Like the minute you talk about Amazon, the minute you order from Amazon, if you didn't get a confirmation and a tracking thing, you'd be like, what's going on here? Absolutely. Where's my package? Where is it going? Like, it's just... They've built a consumer behavior that now needs to be transcended into business to business, right? Or business to consumer in in in, a, in an HR recruiting perspective. And and the systems are there. Like all you have to do is build the front end that connects to your back end that 
you know, make it like the pizza thing, fool people like me, like make it timely, whatever it is. But, you know, like just so people can be like, where is my, where's my resume? Like what's going on? It's a, it's a black box. It is tying into what you said towards the end of that though. What I thought was really interesting is candidates want transparency. They want clear communication with what's going on. They want to know who's in leadership, you know, who, what kind of roles would I be doing? What's, what's my workload like, things like that. And the more excuse me, I guess the younger the generation gets, Gen Z, the more niche and specific they want to know these kinds of information. But my question to you is, do you think companies know what candidates want? Because from me and Chris's perspective, this happened a while ago. I don't, I forget the, the name of the platform. I'm not trying to show, uh, throw shade or anything. But like when you're, in college, <laughs> when you're in college, you get like a little portal and like jobs are just sending you different internships and whatever. Handshake probably. It's probably yeah, handshake way up, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And I promise you, if you just hid the logo, it was a copy and paste of, hey, Peacemaker, we're X, Y, and Z. We do. Um, it's it's It was actually insane. Yeah. It's actually insane. The worst is when they forget to actually copy and paste the name and it just says, hey, with the blank or hey, insert name in the parentheses. That's always a tough one to get. I feel really valued by them when that happens. <laughs> my my favorite is, and, and this happens a lot, because what, what HR people will do, recruiting people will do, this is before generative AI, of course, is look at a competitor that they admire, like an Apple or, you know, in design companies like IDEO, you go to their website, cut and copy their, their, their job descriptions. They're like, all right, I need a similar. And they would forget to change the company name, which had happened many, many years ago, not to me, but I've, I've known somebody to go through that. So yeah, it's, uh, it's likely, you know, it's, it, there was a great book called the paradox of choice, which talks about if you go down your supermarket aisle for shampoos, you're likely just to grab the same shampoo you've always you always grab because there's so many of them, but they're incrementally different. And none of the, it's like the part, like I can't choose. There's so many. So I'm just going to grab what I'm familiar with and move on. Same thing here, right? It, there's just so many choices. It almost feels like it's the same and it, and it likely is to a degree, like very, very similar to each other. Yeah. With that being said, do you think companies know what candidates want? I mean, clearly through action, they don't copy and paste is the current reality, but where's where's the blind spot there how come they're not able to communicate what people want to know and showcase what people want to see before they even click apply like explain yeah. that early stage discrepancy well i think it, there's a couple of reasons from my perspective one and I, I give grace to the companies the hr teams and the recruiting teams they're not given enough budget to really think about okay we you know there's plenty of data to support what people want. So there, you can't claim ignorant. There's so much data in there and whether it's depending on where you trust the data from, but like, if you look at, I'm sure if you search McKinsey's website, there's a, what do candidates want type of, you know, 30 page document that you can pull in. You, some people write books on this about Gen Z and they give you the pre prescription about what Gen Z is looking for, but then you have to implement it, right? You have to then make change. And a lot of these, you know, a lot of recruiting departments are focused on just going out and finding candidates. They're not really thinking about or have budgets to really think about employer branding, right? And ways to think about how to like, okay, this, you think about the, how companies build the you know, customer experience. There's a ton of money. I know because I work for a company that researches consumers. And I know that there are companies spending a, a shit ton of money to get this data and, and really think about this, right? So first of all, are you putting money into this to really think through what are the needs, right? And, and you can get data for free on the internet. Then it's about changing the experience. And I think oftentimes, one, there's not enough budgets. Two, the systems themselves are difficult to change. So the recruiting, the ATS solutions, very difficult to change the experience on that side, because if you really wanted to have that pizza-like experience, it's almost impossible with the solutions that you have today. There, there are a couple of solutions, and I always forget it because he's the one that told me about the pizza. He, he dream crushed my pizza uh, tracking thing. I forget his name, but he's working on something similar to that. And I wish I remembered his name, but the company was an overlay on your ATS to show people where you were in the process. So, but it takes investment. And a lot of times it, uh, companies aren't investing in these things. And and you, you've seen that at the beginning of this year with headwinds 
on the economic side, most of the department, like HR and recruiting departments were, were disseminated. Like it, like it, they were destroyed. They were built up over the last three years. You couldn't hire a recruiter and HR person uh, for, you know, for a ton of money. Now it's like, that's the first thing companies are cutting. So it's, it's, again, it's a challenge across the board in terms of, and, and some folks don't have the intention to really think about it. That's the other thing. Well, staying on the topic of Gen Z, you wrote a book, The New Employee Contract. For those listening, be sure to get it on Amazon. And reading this book this week, there's a couple of things I found really interesting. There's, I believe it's chapter three, where you mentioned Gen Z actually wants a job security more than almost anything else. I think that's an interesting take because a lot of people can argue that Gen Z truly wants flexibility and autonomy when at work. What made you want to lean into that position, especially, I, I believe it's under the chapter of the Great Recession and the COVID depression. What made you want to lean into that? And do you still hold the same stance or are you a little flexible in that stance as it stands currently? Sure. Always flexible. New information comes in. The great book, Adam Grant, Think Again, right? So when you have new information, some people call it flip-flopping. I call it, you have new information and you change your position or your mind with that. Always flexible. I will say, and thanks for plugging the book, you know, good reviews on Amazon for the book, except for one woman in the Midwest who said it would dribble. So anyway, can't make everyone happy, uh, like calling, <laughs> calling her out. It's all good. Uh, not everyone's going to love what you do. And that's the risk. Like that's just, you know, sidebar. Like when you produce stuff, just put it out there. Not, you know, you're always going to have someone that doesn't like what you do. In terms of safety, I mean, I think it's a custom norm of of how they grew up, right? Their parents have gone through the great reset, the, uh, the, the housing collapse in 2008. They saw instability. They see it every day. Climate change, right? Racial uh, inequity, all of this stuff happening as they're growing up. They're seeing it's just in the the instability that they're seeing is not something they're reading in books they're experiencing in real life some cases through their parents but in in a lot of cases directly themselves so that's why safety is important to these folks and by providing safety doesn't necessarily mean you you it doesn't it's not linear in the sense that safety is the opposite of flexibility and autonomy in fact i think it's it's quite the same right if i Safety is about the new employee contract. So the high level view of the book is what I've been talking about around assets and, and, and thinking about human capital a little bit differently. Going back many, many years, there, you know, a lot of companies were community-based companies and they had this unwritten contract, like, hey, come work for me. We're a family, come to work for us, you know, typically, and then you would get trained, you'd be able to get promoted. Like there was a contract that existed. It wasn't like a literal contract. It was metaphorically speaking, but they had this contract. And then when the seventies came and we really started focusing on short-term earnings at a, at a, at an economic level, that's when it changed. The contract just got destroyed. Like, Hey, uh, you know, you're going to give me something, I'm going to give you something in the minute, you know, the economic headwinds hit, we're going to lay you off. My dad reapplied for his own job, worked for the same company to 40, for 40 years. They went through economic hardship. They said, reapply for your job, his own job, didn't get it. How do you not get your own job? And they forced him into retirement because it was cheaper, like he was too expensive. They wanted to hire a younger person. So they forced him into retirement. Here's a person that had all this human capital knowledge of your organization. Now, you know, they're still in existence and they're and they're fine, but and I don't tell anyone their name because let's save the innocent. But but anyway, the whole point of this is that safety is not against flexibility and autonomy. It's part of it. It's these things that you have to offer. Now, you know, these are young folks coming in. And I think that the balance here that we're seeing in real life, because my book is research, right? So it's not, some of it is real life. We talked to Gen Zers when we, when we researched the book, is we're seeing a tension between those two things. Like, hey, I'm coming in super smart. You should give me autonomy. And we're saying, no, nah, not really. I mean, you're smart, but there's some things you need to learn. So we can't give you ultimate autonomy. So it's like, there's, we're going to find balance here over time. There's going to be, it's almost like if you're a DJ and the fader, you're going to like, what's the right, you know, I, I love watching those behind the musics with Jay-Z and just like the, you don't see the brilliance of these folks until you're watching those things and like little tweak of something in the music or the sample. And it's like now a hit. It's the same kind of thing. We're going to have to tweak these things. How do you 
provide an element of safety or communicate safety to someone who's looking to get involved with your company, right? Opposed to them just taking a leap of faith, essentially, and them saying, okay, well, I trust you in good faith, you know, despite all the economic hardship that we all see, right? And some companies are still going through as it stands and says, I feel comfortable here. What can companies do to almost ensure and broadcast and confirm like, hey, like, we're here for the long run. We're not here to have a double take on this this value of you know, valuing everybody, whether it's millennials, Gen Z, things like that. What can companies do to ensure that kind of safety? So people stepping into the workforce, as I mentioned, through any generation feels comfortable. Yeah, I think it's act, right? So I think you can say all the things you want. So, hey, we're, you know, we're a great, Susie went through you know, call it out. Susie went through economic headwinds earlier this year and we had to reduce our staff. And and it's a math equation. Like we're we need to hit revenue, we need to hit profitability, which which is definitely different than it has been for years. It was all about grow, right? Like it was there was a famous book, Blitzscaling, right? Like get all this money and grow and we don't care about your profitability. And then all of a sudden the entire market goes, wait, hold on. We're going to go back to business basics. You have to grow but also be profitable, right? So there are things in here so it's, it's it, you know, if somebody has a question about that, it's not hiding it. It's the transparency of like, hey, just like I explained it, it's a math equation, right? And for, unfortunately, we had to do these things, but the company is doing better, right? Or being transparent in the recruiting process. There is a forcing function now in a lot of states, not federal, but state, where you have to be transparent with your, your compensation on your job descriptions. I think that's a great thing. I think that's like, here's transparency at the very beginning of our relationship, right? Where this was, again, another black box where it's like, how much are you paying? What, you know, I don't know what I should disclose, which should, you know, like you never know where you stand, where now you know a range, you can actually put forth a number within that range. Like it levels up that transparency. That's forced by law, but I think it's a great practice. I think being transparent in the recruiting process, right? Hey, yes, we did a riff. This is exactly why. And then once they come on board, that transparency doesn't stop. And that's the one thing I love about working at Susie and with Matt Britton. Every, I would, I want to say every other month or every quarter, he does a deep dive into our financials and saying like, this is from a revenue perspective where we are. Yeah, we're doing great here. We're accelerating. We're doing not so great here or we're struggling. We had to make a decision and we had to, to, to figure out our costs because that's what the world is asking us to do. It's again, it's not, it's not, this is where I go back to the, the higher macroeconomic framework needs to change and then we can change. But until that changes, this I sound like Rocky Balboa. If I can change, if you can change, we all can change. This is the Russian fight, by the way. Rocky, four? Is that three or four? Four. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it, there was a Rocky thing last weekend. So it's top of mind. But anyway, so it's that kind of thing, right? So So I think it's that transparency and letting folks know and making sure that your messaging is authentic, right? If you're a company that's like, hey, you know, we value the employee and we value uh, long-term relationships and we're going to commit to that. And then you're doing reductions in force and terminating people, you're you're sending the wrong message, right? So it's being honest about the realities of your business, which aren't often, you know, sexy in that, in that sense. It's, you know, it's, it's the real world. Yep. I completely agree. I think transparency absolutely crucial. And I think for companies that I guess tend to be more opaque, I don't really understand that at all because as an employee, if you want me to dedicate my time, give my, you know, put my best foot forward and you're not being transparent and letting me know and feeling like I have a seat at the table, don't really know why you expect me to be giving you that hundred percent all the time. Right. I need that transparency yeah. for day one. So I agree with you. So, and that's true for any generation, but something yeah. I wanted to- And any company, um, frankly, just to not to interrupt, but please. like if you look at, there was a great post I follow, uh, Gaping Void, which is a company I worked with in the past. They help do cultural stuff and they have an artist, Hugh McLeod, that does drawings and they have a newsletter that has a 70 plus open rate, which is great. They just posted something about Goldman Sachs, right? So we all know Goldman Sachs. They, years ago, they tried to perpetuate a nicer Goldman Sachs, and it didn't work because people go there knowing that is a hard place. It's like, you know, it's the, I was going to say the Yankees, I'm not a baseball fan, but let's, the the, the Bulls or whatever, pick, pick a, a dynasty. Like they, you know, going there that it's going to be hard, but you're coming out as a better 
financial person or it, it'll open, open up doors for other things, right? So they try to to do to 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 be something that they were not and it didn't work. So own what you are. Like that's transparency. It's not trying to be something else. What are the good things about your brand? Listen, you might be a hard place to work and you're working people to 3 a.m., but it's Goldman Sachs, right? Like it's like you're Yes, people know coming in. So it really didn't work for them, which is really interesting. So again, the transparency is not just like, hey, being transparent to what this generation is looking for. It's being own what who you are as an organization and what the good things are. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I actually think that's so, so interesting because, yeah, Goldman, I, you know, I, I've uh, had a couple of friends who worked at Goldman. They understand getting into the, yeah, the 3 a.m. nights. They're going to be there. It's a hustle culture, right? But exists, but exists for a reason. And I think humans have this really interesting ability where they can sniff out the bullshit. They can tell when that message is inauthentic. They get just that feeling, that intuition, whatever it is. So very interesting. I'm going to look into that after after this, actually. But something I do want to touch upon again, your book, you're very, very adamant about Gen Z and how much of a difference they will have in the workplace and um, just overall on, on the HR spectrum. But you on your LinkedIn header, you have a little quote from your book. It says, in the future, social capitalism, a focus on human capital metrics and entry of Gen Z in the workplace will change business forever. So really unpack that. Why do you believe this? Why are you so adamant about Gen Z? And why will they be so impactful? Yeah, I appreciate you quoting me to me. Um, I'm like, that was a really good quote. <laughs> so it's, I think it's what we, what I found when researching. So I used Susie to research the book partially. And then I talked to Gen Z. We did a bunch of different focus groups to really, I didn't want to write this because I know I would be called out. Like, why is it extra writing about Gen Z? But it's more about the HR person in me than, than the uh, generational person. But really what we found is what the things that I saw that was that needed to change in business, this focus on human capital, what we talked about before, the idea of company value being primarily human capital driven, I saw the need in a lot of organizations and a lot of data that's coming out now is the focus on human capital, right? Making sure that businesses are focusing on the employee and making sure because that's the driver of, of company value. Then I did the research for the book and these two worlds collided, right? This idea of being more human focused was something that this generation, this next generation of the workforce is looking for so it was like a perfect it was it was an aha moment for me when those two things collided because i was like all right this is not only something that's good for the generation coming in but it's also good from an economic perspective we're starting to see that if you do these things and and report human capital and focus on human capital in your businesses it's really going to drive company value which is ultimately what we're you know the the investors are looking for and the economy is looking for right more better businesses more higher growing and faster growing businesses so it perfectly aligned with each other which is why it's super important to align those two things and say okay now i have a prescription for you to be a better company from an economic perspective but also for this next generation coming in and then if you add on and i'm a big fan of peter zion i talk a lot about peter zion he wrote a book called the end of the world is just the beginning he is a political strategist, global strategist, uh, and he talks a lot about demographics and particularly demographic collapse. And so what I mean by this is you have a lot of older generations retiring or, or dying, frankly, and a lot less younger generations. And it's going to and we're starting to see it already in China where they, you know, they were restrictive in terms of births and now they're seeing the effects of this. So they have more people retiring not enough younger people coming into the workforce consuming things. So it's not just coming in and being productive. It's also like buying stuff. Like there's a two-sided marketplace here. So also when I think about that, I think about, oh, actually from a, if all your value is derived from people or 90 or 95% of your company values derived by people and there's less people available in the world, we got to, like that's a now competitive advantage for you. Like if you do the right things, the 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 headcount of younger people is smaller. You're going to have and this is why a lot of economists are like it's baffling people why we're in unemployment record on uh, low unemployment is because we just don't have enough people to do the work. Like we're we're not going to see a demographic collapse. Peter prescribes the U.S. to being challenged, but not 
not seriously because we are there's a lot of things and i won't get into the book but there's a lot of we can just self-sustain we don't have to go out into the global economy for for really anything but you know and i just published something about immigration so really all these things kind of line up uh alongside what this generation is looked for and i said this is this is the perfect thing to, to focus on trying to be considerate of your time and making sure we touch upon all the topics we want to get so your thoughts many. on yeah yeah, absolutely. Well, first, getting back to the Goldman Sachs point you made, employee branding is something that Chris and I we speak all the time and how essential it is. And the Goldman Sachs example that you presented is a testament to why to how a lot of companies don't really know or choose, I guess, being that they're a large enterprise, I like to exist in their own brand identity. And when they do look to convert to personify something they're not, it almost like hurts them in a sense. Whereas like, well, now you you just killed, I don't, whether it's your applicant pool, just your overall cultural or brand identity to your external audience. It's just, it's just not a good look. So I think you brought up a very valid point on how essential employee branding is when it comes to being authentically yourself, you mentioned, and making sure the messaging matches up to that, which yeah. I think is a really point, point, which is a really important point. Mentioned earlier, your podcast host, Burn the Box, Process Scriber. Uh, be sure everyone to follow him on uh, Apple Podcasts, by the way. <laughs> uh, recently, you dropped, two days ago, you dropped an, an episode, a four or five minute episode revolving around uh, AI and the chatbot interface. Your uh, previous startup founder, you were early to the game when it, when it came to presenting chatbots within the HR function. If you could introduce what you are building and why you're not building anymore with all these resources that are available to you, and we'll just take it from there. Yeah, appreciate it. So you're just to confirm, you're the third subscriber. So thank you for that. You've you've uh, increased my subscriber base by thirty three percent. Appreciate it. Yeah, what I try to do, I mean, with content, I'm I'm always trying to think of single point of context. Start with the blog post, make it a video, and then take the video audio and make it into a podcast. So that's why the the burn the box uh, sessions are so quick because they're really just drops of of things that I think about for that particular week that stem from the blog. So I appreciate that, that support. Yeah. I mean, I like a failed accountant, I'm a failed HR chatbot creator. I saw the opportunity. I want to say, you know, seven years ago, maybe a little bit longer where, you know, I originally called it Sue.ai because there was a person I used to work for in HR that I felt was a robot. So I, I called the bot that uh, that name. And so the idea was, you know, HR folks will tell you they are inundated with the day to day, like things that are just repetitive, like questions from employees, things like that. And I said, what if we automate that? And at the time there was, you know, we talked about AI. AI is interesting because we I was talking about it 10 years ago and now we're seeing a lot of it again. So history is now repeating itself. But we saw the opportunity through TensorFlow with Google to, to do a chatbot. Like, can we, the, the premise of what was originally sued then moved to K, K.AI, which is the initials of the people that were helping me, Krish, Anthony, and Ella, we were trying to take a manual, employee manual, and make it a chatbot. So you, it would answer questions because a lot of HR questions are policy questions. Like, what's the policy for PTO? Or how do I do this? Or how do I do that? So if I, I said, if I can eliminate 50% of those questions, which in some cases take 15 minutes of HR time or five minutes of HR time, that allows us then to focus on the strategic elements of HR, takes that sort of mundane operational stuff, which is, by the way, super important. When an employee has a question, it's like a customer. You want to answer it as quickly as possible and, and as accurately as possible so they can get onto their jobs, right? You want to be able to do that. That was the premise of K. It was hard. It was hard. We had to manufacture every question and make sure that it was tied in into the manual. It was just a very difficult process. And then November last year, open API comes out and it's like, oh my, that's this this is now easy. Like all the challenges we had by doing this and scaling it were solved by open API and generative AI, where now you can just upload a PDF and it'll answer questions about it. it's like that's what I was trying to get to. So it was hard. So and and the hardest thing as a as an entrepreneur, as you both know, is letting go of something. And I was like, this is just too impossible. It, it was also a side gig. So like we were kind of half working on it. And I'm like, you know what? Let's just, it's too hard. 
but now we're seeing a proliferation of these tools. So now it doesn't make sense because everyone's doing the same exact thing. But I'm I'm excited about this opportunity uh, in in really building this final HR bot within Suzy so we can answer some of these questions through all our different knowledge bases, all our different articles, all our different PDFs. So I'm I'm excited about it. And I think this is the future. Like I talked about in the podcast and the and the uh and the blog post is that when people interact with HR systems, it's going to be a chatbot across the board. Like, hey, I want to, I'm moving from Chicago to New York. You know, I have to change my address and boom, boom. Oh, what's your change? My new address is this in the chatbot. And then that's going to go out into the HR database, which by the way, depending on which HR solution you use is, is so awful in terms of the user experience to find where to put your address in, where you could just chat it and it's done in the database. So I think we are going to stop putting, you know, data into forms and fields and just chat it. And that's, I, I think we're probably six months to a year away from doing something like that. Interesting. Six months, the six months away from Susie, or you're saying the, the In general. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Susie's doing our own development of AI within market research. And we have a bunch of things that are coming out in beta in the next 30 to 60 days. We're just taking a very wait and see approach and a risk because a lot of our clients are billion dollar enterprises and they're kind of like, let's hold off, let's see what's happening. So we're taking a very intentional look at everything, still working in parallel, but making sure that we're doing things right as opposed to just jumping in and doing something. So we're being very thoughtful about it. Absolutely, yeah. as you should. How do you, how do you foresee your HR people ops community really engaging with? The interface through it through a chatbot. Do you think they're receptive to it? Do you think they're skeptical about it? Are they are they taking strategic protocols in terms of how they're rolling out or incorporating it? Understanding that it deals with a lot: candidates, employees, customers, partners, everything under the sun. How do you see that relationship going with your counterparts? So when I look at so you're talking about the HR community itself, I see two 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 potential owners or or contributors. It's the HR community and the employees. Let's hit HR first. HR. They're not, the industry itself is not typically, if you think of the innovation curve where you have adopters and then it goes to the large curve and then back down, most HR people are on the other side. I am different. I'm usually like, oh, this is cool. Let me try it out. I'm usually first a first mover where most HR folks are not. Now, I think that's changing a little bit, but still they're more of a wait and see, like, is Google doing this or is anybody else doing this? Once it's sort of out there already, then I'll adopt it. So I think there's a wait and see model in HR in some, in in overall, I think there are some folks that are on the peripheral that are doing things like me, where we're testing and trying to get more innovative products. But I think for the most part, HR folks will wait and see on these kind of things. And there are a couple of solutions that are, you know, that I'm working with that are are doing these kind of things, uh, like even on the people metric side, where you can chat like, hey, what is our attrition? And then it comes up as opposed to looking for dashboards and trying to figure it out. So I'm excited about that. On the employee side, I think they're absolutely ready to adopt a chatbot experience. If I don't have to email the HR team, wait a day to get a response back or an hour or two hours, and I chat it about, I go into a chatbot and say, hey, you know, how do I fill out a PTO form or what's our policy on leave? and they get an answer quickly and they're back to their day jobs and doing what they do, I think you're going to see 199% adoption there. And they're also, you know, there's historically shown that people are more comfortable chatting with a chatbot than with a human with more personal level stuff like leave or something like that. So I think you're going to see HR will be a wait and see. I think the consumer or the employee is going to be in like a very quick adoption like we saw with OpenAPI where, you know, they went from zero to 100 million users in months as opposed to years. Is there a particular vertical you see immense success in, whether it be through the employee experience, the HR uh, executive or leadership experience? I think uh, employee experience, definitely. If you overlay this as the user experience on HR systems, like even going back to our recruiting example, like, hey, where's my resume? You can just ask it natural language questions and you get answers back. Like, you know, your resume is in the oven and it's cooking. And so that kind of thing. And I think metrics, I think if one of the interesting things is the open APIs code generator, where you can add Excel spreadsheets, it is actually an analyst by your side. I think metrics from that perspective, I can give C the CEO of Suzy a chatbot, and now he can ask any human, like I'm no longer, I want to democratize this information. I'm not holding this behind walls anymore. Hey, you want to know what our attrition looks like for our sales team or where our recruiting is? 
go ask the chatbot. So I think that the the recruiting or the metrics, not recruiting, the metric side of HR, that I'm really excited about. Well, Anthony, really, we could keep talking to you for another 16 hours, probably longer than that. This episode has been nothing short of phenomenal. Could you just tell the people where they can find you, where they can find more about you? Obviously, we plug the book, the podcast, everyone make sure they go and get that. But where can they find you? And more about Susie. Uh, yeah, easy. Suzy is uh, Suzy, S-U-Z-Y dot com. Please reach out uh, if you're looking for market research, consumer insights. Uh, we're we're kind of owning the world there. So um, so good time to, to connect with us. And then for me, it's Anthony Onesto at uh, AnthonyOnesto.com. So that's my website. You can connect with me there. Uh, see all about, you know, probably have this podcast at some point on there. So thanks. Beautiful, beautiful. Anthony, any last words for the people out there? Anything, any any closing statement you would like to let the people know? It's a lot of pressure. I think it's, for me, it's, I, I really hold true, true to Adam Grant's position on things in his book, Think Again. It's like, think like a scientist, be curious. I think that, you know, that is a key factor for everyone and everything and, and really learn. That's what I tried to perpetuate with the book is instead of, and we, we saw this, like a lot of folks start throwing darts at the generation and calling them names. And it's like, why don't you be more curious? Like find out why this generation is the way they are. Read the book, buy the book and learn more about them. So be curious, you know, think like a scientist as Adam Grant said, and think again and be open. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Everyone make sure, start your day by thinking like a scientist, be curious, try things, experiment. Yeah. With that being said, Anthony, thank you so much. Again, phenomenal episode. Thank you for coming on. Thank you both. Thanks for having me. And to everyone listening to the New Seed Podcast, thank you very much. And until next time.